morning and welcome to those of you who may have come in after the greeting, at the opening. We, we come now to that portion of our gathering on Sunday mornings where we take a little bit of time to look um, at the Bible. That's a regular thing here for us because we believe that uh, God has spoken and that he has done so in and through uh, the written word that is through the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. So if the creator of the universe has spoken, and we believe that he has, the obvious question is, what has he said? And it makes perfect sense that we would take time to read and think out loud about both what God has said and what responding to what he said might look like. So that's part of what we do when we gather on Sundays. We look at the scriptures together, we listen to God together, and uh, we listen actually with our eyes as we read the scriptures. Now, for over a year now, we have been looking at one particular book of the Bible, one book out of a total of 66 books in the Bible. The book we've been looking at is the book of Romans. And uh, basically, it is a letter written by one of Jesus' apostles, by Paul, to a church that he did not start, but which, as I believe, he wanted to use as a base of operations for his ongoing ministry to the cities and the regions that were sort of west of Rome, even as far as Spain itself, which he's actually going to mention in the last chapter of this letter. Uh, And so to enlist the confidence and to get the support of the church in Rome, he sends them this letter that we've been studying, which is kind of a theological resume. It lets them know a little bit about him as a person, uh, but most importantly, it lets them know about what he believes. Uh, as an apostle and what he teaches as an apostle. Now, again, as I've said, we've been looking at this for quite some time and we actually find ourselves this morning near the end of this great letter. Uh, And in these closing portions of the letter, Paul has been doing a lot of applying of truths that he has spent a good bit of time explaining mainly up to this point. And And the applying, the application... Is, uh, is vitally important because, as John Frame rightly points out, if we don't know how a truth applies, then we really don't know what it means. And so, again, Paul has been focusing ever since chapter 12 on some of the implications or applications of the gospel, that is, the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, uh, for how the Romans should live their lives. Now, obviously, the gospel... Um, I say obviously, but as we've come to learn, the gospel has implications for everything, for, for all of our life. So there's really only so much that Paul can say in this one letter about the application of the gospel. But one area that he seems to have felt strongly compelled to speak on is this whole matter of human relationships. How Christians are to respond and interact in a number of situations. Specifically, he's talked about some of the implications of the gospel for relationships between Christians in general as part of uh, their day-to-day life as a matter of course. Additionally, he's talked about the implications of the gospel for how Christians relate to people that hate them, their enemies. Thirdly, he's talked about the implications of the gospel for how Christians should relate to government or civil authorities. And then for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the implications of the gospel for the very specific situation of how Christians relate to one another when they don't agree on some important but non-essential issues. 
Paul has made a, a big deal about this particular situation. He said more about that than any of the other ones before. And uh, for a number of reasons, no doubt. Um, he's done it, most likely, I think, because it was a current issue in the Roman church. These things were going on, at least at the time this letter was written. Secondly, Paul most likely writes about it because it's been an issue in every other church that he has had anything to do with. And thirdly, uh, because Paul knows that, that this situation of Christians dealing with each, with each other in disputable matters, that's just going to keep coming up. As long as you have broken, sinful Christians living together in community, uh, they're going to disagree and they're going to have to learn how to do that in a way that honors God. So, so uh, now so far over the past uh, couple of weeks, we have seen a number of important things that Paul has to say on this particular matter. Uh, let me quickly review them for you in bullet point fashion. Um, we've seen that not every issue is a disputable or debatable issue. There are many things that the Bible is very clear on. Uh, issues that relate to the integrity of the gospel message are very clear are not disputable issues, but many other things are not as clear. Some things are not as black and white as some Christians want to believe. Secondly, when it comes to disputable, unclear, debatable matters, more important than the view that we hold is the manner in which we hold it. Thirdly, while we are free to reject a disputable view, we are not free, we are never free, to reject the person who holds it. We're to welcome them, and they are to welcome us. Paul's been clear about that. When it comes to these debatable matters, fourthly, it makes all the difference in the world if the people on both sides of the issue are working hard to be sure of at least two things. One, that their view is not contrary to what the Bible teaches more clearly elsewhere. And secondly, that the pursuit of their view is coming from a desire to see God honored, not just to have things your own way. Fifthly, we have to recognize that people can actually be on opposite sides of an issue, opposite poles of a disputable issue, and they can have the exact same motive of honoring God. And we need to believe that the best about each other in that regard and to respect that motive even in those with whom we disagree, until or unless we're given strong reasons to believe otherwise. Uh, six, Christians are not to be a stumbling block for other Christians. We saw this last week. That is, they're not to encourage by their words or their example or both. They're not to encourage another Christian to go against their conscience on a disputable matter and so imitate a practice that they are not personally sure about. The issue is not having a different opinion. It's not even necessarily having a different practice. The issue is actually leading a brother or sister to imitate a behavior for which they do not have an inward liberty or conviction to practice. Whenever we do that, whenever we encourage a brother and sister to to engage in something in that way, we are encouraging them to develop a habit of going against their troubled consciences. Paul says we, we must never do that. Lastly, there, when there is a real danger, or we think there may be a real danger, 
of this kind of thing happening. The burden of responsibility, Paul makes it really clear, the burden of responsibility in those situations is on the strong Christian. That is, on the one whose conscience isn't troubled about a certain issue to gladly and willingly forego her rights and privileges because it is not worth it. It is not worth it to put at risk a believer for whom Christ died. And in doing so, and in doing this very thing, the strong believer is actually imitating Christ himself and so brings glory to God. That's where we ended up in our last study. The passage before us this morning, Romans 15, 8 to 13, Paul has really... He has one more main thing to say about this matter before he moves on to some other things and then closes out the letter. Before we look at what he has to say, let's pause and pray together, and then we'll look at the passage. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please, um, please guide us into an understanding of the passage before us that is true and right, uh, which makes us more like Jesus, whom we... Uh, poorly and partially reflect now, but who we will perfectly reflect on that day when you are completely finished with us. Uh, If you had not promised to finish this project that is us, uh, we would have given up on it a long time ago. But because you have promised, we have every reason to keep moving forward, to keep fighting hard and hoping fiercely. Um, Thank you. Thank you, thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's listen now to the passage. I'm going to start at verse 7, which is kind of summarizing the section just prior to this, and then read through to verse 13, Romans 15. This is God's Word. This is, uh, this is utterly reliable. Everything I say about it, you need to weigh carefully against Scripture, because I can get it wrong, and I do. So, but here's scripture. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written... Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Now, in a nutshell, what I think is going on here is this. Um, In the previous verses, as we've already seen, Paul was addressing the attitudes and the actions of believers toward one another in this area of disputable matters. And in so doing, he's grounding his instructions in a number of things, telling them and us that we are to welcome one another. We are to defer to one another and behave lovingly toward one another for several reasons. Uh, We're to welcome Christians with whom we disagree on some matter. Firstly, because God has welcomed them. Secondly, we do it because the person with whom you disagree uh, is a person for whom Jesus died, not you. 
you did not die for them, and since you didn't die for them and aren't their Lord, that means Jesus is their master and you aren't. So you need to stop acting like it. And I need to stop acting like it. Thirdly, we welcome them and defer to them because they are family. And some of you, I think, don't see this or get this or even believe this yet, but they are as much family as your family of origin. As your own flesh and blood. Fourthly, we do all this because on the judgment day, we will not be dealing with anybody else's issues but our own. And so we ought to be far more concerned with our own hearts, our own actions, attitudes, than trying to get everybody else to line up with us on every issue. Those are some of the reasons that Paul has already given for responding as we should to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. In the verses just read to you, uh, to that already considerable list, Paul adds one more reason why the strong Christians in particular are to welcome and defer to their weaker brothers, even though in the end it's aimed at the weaker Christians as well. And the reason I think is found there in verses 7 to 9a. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. There's a reason in there. Maybe you don't see it yet. Uh, So let me unpack the verse a little bit. What is Paul saying? He summarizes everything he's been saying in the previous section with that phrase, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And then he gives a reason. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. And so you say, okay, for the glory of God. That's a good reason. That's a big reason. But how, here's the question, how specifically Will the Roman believers practice of welcoming one another and accepting one another in this whole area of disputable matters? How is that going to bring glory to God? How is that going to honor God? How will that behavior show off God's greatness? That's the question. In order to answer, um, Paul, uh, to understand Paul's answer to that in verses 8 to 9, Uh, We need to recall a couple points from last week and then think about some things found in the earliest parts of the Bible. If you were here last week, uh, hopefully you'll remember our looking at some of the things that the Roman Christians were dividing over in Paul's day. They were dividing over matters of food and uh, drink and the observance of special days and festivals and things like that. Hopefully you'll also remember that the struggle seems to have been rooted uh, in some of the differences in experience and perspective between former Jews who had become Christians and former Gentiles or pagans who had become Christians. Certainly the differences would not have fallen exclusively along racial or ethnic lines like that. However, while the differences were not exclusively racial or ethnic, they would have predominantly fallen along those lines. And that seems to be the evidence in Paul's letter and in the the book of Acts and other parts of the New Testament. And so running in the background here, running in the background is a Jew and Gentile situation. And this is where what Paul says in verse 8 to 9 comes in because what these verses are saying is that Christ's coming accomplished two important tasks as part of the same mission. One part of having to do with the Jews and the other part with the Gentiles. Firstly, Christ came as a servant, 
the passage says, as a servant to the circumcised, which is Paul's shorthand for the people who were descended from the Old Testament patriarchs, starting with Abraham, continuing through Isaac. Now, maybe you've not read the Bible before, uh, and maybe uh, you, you may wonder, who was Abraham, and uh, what, is, what is the deal with Abraham? Well, if you look back at Genesis 12, right at the start, you see God, out of the blue, an act of sheer mercy, sheer mercy and grace, choosing and setting apart this man, Abraham, out of all the people on the earth, and he makes these, these amazing promises to him, and not just to him, but to his descendants, including the promise that through Abraham, all the families and nations on the earth would be blessed. God then reaffirms this promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, and he ratifies it with this ceremony that was not uncommon back in the day, but which we would think was very strange in our own day. Nevertheless, and strange though it may seem, it was this ratifying ceremony was for all practical purposes simply the Old Testament equivalent of a modern-day contract. Finally, in Genesis 17, we see a further affirmation and expansion of the covenant, beginning with the firm command that God gave Abraham to walk before him and be blameless. That, or so that, I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you. Then all, alongside all of that, Genesis 17, there was the attachment of a sign and seal for God's people, a sign of circumcision, which as I mentioned just a moment ago, Paul refers to in Romans 15, 8, when he says that Christ came as a servant to the circumcised. And the thing that I want you to see uh, in these three covenant encounters, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, is this. There is something of a progression going on. In Genesis 12, God just shows up and he tells Abraham that he's determined to bless him and make him a great nation, bless all the families on the earth through him. I mean, it's just, it's just grace. It's just sheer grace. God's telling Abraham what he has already determined to do. And what he's determined to do is bless him and to love him. So God leads with grace, Genesis 12. Then in Genesis 15, we see that there are, in fact, some terms attached to this covenant. There are stipulations, there are expectations, which are shown by means of this strange ceremony described there. Specifically, we learn in Genesis 15, this, that there are consequences. There are dangerous, grave, life and death consequences that will occur if this covenant between God and Abraham is broken. Consequences that will and must fall to those who take upon themselves the obligations of the covenant. But we also learn, interestingly enough, that while normally when this sort of covenant was enacted and this sort of ratifying ceremony went on, normally both parties would sign on the dotted line in terms of making this agreement. But in the case of this covenant between God and Abraham in Genesis 15, only God signs on the line. And thus he takes upon himself and in himself all the responsibility for securing the covenant as well as he takes upon himself alone the consequences or penalties should the covenant not be kept. Finally, as the progression continues, we learn in Genesis 17 that God's command to Abraham is to walk before him 
blamelessly. So if God, it's as if God says to Abraham, uh, hey, you and I, you and I are going to have a relationship and I'm going to be your God and you and the God of you and your descendants, you're, all, you're going to be my people. That's settled. And then God says to him, you should also know that there are expectations or terms involved in this covenant relationship and I'm taking full responsibility for that myself and if the covenant's broken, there are consequences, but all of those will fall on me and not you if that happens. And then God says to him, and here's what I expect. Walk, live, blamelessly before me. There's a progression. Now, that's a terribly inadequate summary. Uh, my Old Testament professors will probably shoot me for that, but they aren't here. And... Um, But with those realities in mind, I think we have a little more context for understanding what Paul means in verse 8 when he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Christ in his coming and taking on human flesh and in his living and dying became, says Paul, a servant to the circumcised that people promised. For what purpose? Paul further explains. For the purpose of showing God's truthfulness. God's truthfulness about what? Specifically, God's truthfulness with respect to the specific promises made to the patriarchs. The promises I just talked about, Genesis 12, 15, 17, made with Abraham and reaffirmed through Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. So Christ's coming, right? His living and dying and resurrection, all of that showed the truthfulness, the veracity, the trustworthiness, the durability of everything that God said revealed to Abraham so long ago. And more importantly, Christ's coming secured and actuated the promises made. How did that happen? What did God require of Abraham? He required that he walk blamelessly before him. Here's the thing. Abraham couldn't do it Neither could his sons, neither could any of his descendants, who were all clearly, demonstrably, flagrantly flawed and displayed as such in the Bible. Every one of them. God knew Abraham and his descendants couldn't and wouldn't do it. They might live relatively blamelessly, but none of them would live absolutely, actually blamelessly. Not one of them. Not one. And God knew that. The reason we know that God knew that is because the same God who commands this blameless lifestyle will, once they're established as a nation, give them a sacrificial system. Which, among other things, is an open acknowledgement by God himself that he knows his people have no hope whatsoever of being able to pull this thing off blamelessly and perfectly. God knew that for fallen people walking blamelessly would never mean absolutely blamelessly. And yet, and yet, God still makes this statement. He issues this command. He has this expectation. Why does he do that? Has God lost his mind? No, he does it because God has a view that none of us have. Because when he issues this command, he has his eye not on Abraham himself, not on any of his immediate descendants, 
but on one particular eventual descendant who actually would walk before him blamelessly, who would fully honor the covenant, and would, as one who was both God and man, take upon himself the covenant obligations on both sides, the keeping of it, as well as accepting the consequences for its not being kept. And he would do that representatively, as Romans 5, 12 to 21 made crystal clear. He would do it for the sake of and in the place of all of his people. God had his eye on this one who had not yet come and who wouldn't be coming for quite some time. But that, that is why he could say it. That's why he could command what he did. Because his intention all along was to personally fulfill the command that he personally issued. Until then, the sacrificial system would serve a function. It would be a kind of covering, sort of like a down payment, like a reminder that tells you that the bill has not yet been finally settled. But the sacrifices all by themselves would never be enough on their own to fully deal with human sin. The scriptures are absolutely clear on that. Only Jesus' blood could do that. The book of Hebrews is all about that. So Christ coming and doing all that he did accomplished two important tasks as part of the same mission. Firstly, it served the circumcised, the people of the promise, by demonstrating and securing and actuating the promises that God made, thus showing the truthfulness and trustworthiness of all of God's assurances to and through the patriarchs. And then alongside that, And as part of all that, as verses 8 to 9 shows, Christ's coming also brought about the salvation of the Gentiles, who will also glorify God for his mercy to them, who were part of God's plan from the beginning to be named among the people of God as Abraham's spiritual children. This is what we took a good bit of time to look at when we, to see when we looked at Romans 9 to 11. We looked at the way that God used the Jews' rejection of Jesus, Jesus both as the human historical mechanism by which Christ became the the final sacrifice and the way that God used the ongoing rejection of Jesus to turn the focus of the gospel mission from the Jewish people to the Gentiles, to the nations who were among those for whom Jesus died. And this inclusion, you see, this bringing in of the Gentiles to the purposes of God was part of God's plan all along. You see it there in his promise to uh, Abraham to bless all the families on earth through him. We see it in various places through the Old Testament that speak of the Gentiles giving honor and glory to God. Uh, That, in fact, is what verses 9, the second part of verse 9 all the way through verse 12 of Romans 15 are doing. Those four quotations are simply pointing out some of the places in the Old Testament that highlight this truth about God, salvation going to the Gentiles. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So again, Paul quotes here from four different places. More importantly, as one writer has pointed out, he quotes from the law, and he quotes from the prophets, and he quotes from the writings. That is, from the three main divisions of the Old Testament. As if to say, God's plan, God's purpose with regard to the Gentiles 
comes from and is all over the scriptures. And so taking verses 8 to 12 together, uh, we're now in a position to answer the question originally asked. How specifically will the Roman believers practice of welcoming one another and accepting one another in this whole area of disputable matters bring glory to God? How will that honor God? How will that show off God's greatness? It will show off God's greatness because by the Romans' commitment to the pursuit of that sort of unity amongst themselves, bringing together Jews and Gentiles within their own church family, their own congregation, uniting them together. Whenever the believers in Rome do that, they are in fact cooperating with and bringing about the very purposes for which Christ came. Christ who fulfills the promises made to the patriarchs, who also saves even the Gentiles, and thus evokes their praise for his mercy. As the Romans give up their rights and defer to and welcome and receive one another, they show themselves to be the very instruments by which God brings about the outworking of his grand purposes. Purposes that he has been pursuing and moving toward since the very beginning. On the surface, it may not seem like such a huge thing. Two Christians trying to to love one another over an issue where they disagree. What Paul is saying in the grand scheme of things, that right there, that moment, is actually the outworking of purposes that God has been pursuing and personally invested in through the agency of His Son, Jesus Christ. So what is Paul doing? He is grounding day-to-day practical realities in sweeping theological truths. Daily realities grounded in sweeping, overarching theological truths. And it's in these, these very things, and this is key, but it's in these very things, in the day-to-day issues and struggles and differences and challenges, it is in these seemingly small moments where these deep truths and realities are worked out. It is actually in the more mundane matters of life that are not center stage, that are not in the spotlight, those matters where we aren't moved or motivated by what's out there or who's watching or paying attention. It's actually in the small things and the small places where the deep truths and convictions that guide us from within are either most clearly shown to be present or shown to be completely absent. You see, where a person's heart is and what drives them is most clearly seen by the way that they respond to small things, not great things. Paul's concluding statement in verse 13 seems to be both a prayer for the Roman believers as well as a wish or a hope he has for them. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul talks about the God of hope for two reasons. Firstly, because he's just quoted from Isaiah. 
passage that talks about Christ, the root of Jesse, as the hope of the Gentiles. But he also does so, I believe, because he's just drawn the attention of his readers to four different passages in Scripture. And if you read back in verse 4 of chapter 15, Paul talked there about one of the purposes for which Scripture was given. And he says this, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Why? That or so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. God gave the Scriptures so His people might have hope. So they might become a hopeful people. So Paul talks about hope and he employs the Scriptures right there to help bring about that hope. How do the scriptures do that? I think they do it because in the scriptures we see the person of God and we see the purposes of God. We see how he's actually worked them out in the past. We see how he's worked them out most centrally in the person of Christ. And all of that's encouraging to see and all of that gives us hope that he's going to keep working them out in the future. We see it in the past, we see it through culminating in Christ, and we have objective reasons to to believe and hope that he will continue to do that in the future. So that's what Paul's doing here for the Romans and for us through them. He's showing the grand purpose of God and how he's worked these purposes out in Christ and how he continues to work these purposes out even through the Roman believers, even through day-to-day matters of, of how they deal with and respond to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. That working out of things is where God has been heading for a long, long time. And in doing uh, these things, by grounding their daily life in the grand purposes of God, Paul invests their daily life with purpose and meaning. Everything they do is and can be and ought to be full of purpose. Even the most mundane of things. And purpose, at the end of the day, purpose is the engine room of hope. Where no purpose is known or seen, distress and despair reign supreme. But where God's purposes are treasured and found, that is the place. That is the place where hope is made to abound. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your apostle who was in the habit, not just here in this letter, but in all of his letters, of grounding um, all of life in practice, including very mundane things, very simple things, um, very ordinary things, grounding all of those things in deep abiding truth, and um, drawing those things from your word. And so, Father, he's not only done those things for us, he's modeled for us how those things happen. And so, um, would you help us to benefit not only from what Paul says, 
but even Paul's method, that we would become people who are ourselves grounded in your word so that we do see your person and your purposes better and better and more and more clearly. And we do become more and more people of hope because of that. Um, thank you for the ways that you display this for us. through Paul and the Roman believers um, and make us together with them more like Jesus. Um, and particularly in that way of being a people who abound in hope. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We'll now uh, take up an offering to receive and distribute amongst uh, various uh, ministries and missions in this church and outside this church. Again, we've got a, it's actually a slideshow that's looping in the, the foyer uh, every week that shows some of the people that we support as a church, some of the agencies that we support. So we invite you to give. If you're a visitor, we're not asking you to give. We're glad that you're here. But um, if you're a regular here, I encourage you to give generously to support the work of the gospel.